Just one question. Just one question. Just one question. Just one question. Why? 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 That's it. I'm Tommy Canale, and welcome to A Heartbeat and a Guitar, Johnny Cash, and the Making of Bitter Tears, a podcast docu-series powered by Before the Lights podcast in support of Native American rights of the harsh and unfair treatment of the indigenous community. Along with me is the filmmaker of We're Still Here and author of the book, A Heartbeat and a Guitar, Antonino D'Ambrosio. Vanishing Race, we've reached the last track on the Bitter Tears LP. We will have one more episode for you next week on a wrap-up. This track was written by Johnny Cash and Johnny Horton. Yes, Peter Lafarge, he did love his music, and he used it not as a vicious tool, but as a, as a great voice for the American Indian. And we were very proud that he came down from New York City and brought us five songs to do in this Bitter Tears album of protest songs for the American Indian, which I think was long overdue. Antonino, one reason this series was started is the folk movement was resistant to folk music on behalf of Native issues. You know, there's no other way to describe it, a, a kind of racism that was within the folk music scene, a strange puritanical stance about folk music that it could only speak on behalf of certain issues and certain people. And it was, it was less something that was spoken, although there were that were glad to exclude subjects and stories and groups of people that didn't fit into what they made to be out to be a very narrow definition of folk music. And it's frustrating, but it's interesting, Tommy, we've talked about this quite a bit. You know, John Trudell and the native activists that I spent time with in writing the book and that we've discussed at length in the series now were very clear that their issue, the sovereignty of their people and, and the native movement in general, was not an issue of racial integration. What was happening with civil rights, for example. And so I think that created also a big point of contention. You know, Johnny Cash is this interesting bridge and link in terms of the vision that he had, which was a bigger vision of how you can link these issues, even though they were not in theory and practice aimed at the same thing, you know, in terms of on the ground. Native people are saying, honor our treaties. The, one of the most important aspects of American law is native law, treaty law. You are beholden to honor that. We're not asking you to, you know, let us into your society. We're, we're essentially saying stay out of ours because you're destroying it. And I think that that's a very powerful thing. What we're ultimately talking about is the very nature of democracy as the overarching umbrella political and cultural force, if you will, in this country. And that, again, if you're a nation of laws, this is where you know Johnny Cash, I thought, was very clever in and making this folk protest album and bringing this, the native issue into the heart of the folk movement. One, because let's just be realistic. Johnny Cash is Johnny Cash. He was a badass. They couldn't fuck with him. So as we talked about when he famously went to Newport 
in the summer of 1964, a few months after recording Bitter Tears, he walked around a Newport Folk Festival uh, like, a, like a god. I mean, even Pete Seeger was, was in awe of, and which ties back to your, the clip you just played, that's Johnny Cash and June Carter Cash appearing on Pete Seeger's Rainbow Quest, his great show where he had musicians come on and perform in this beautifully stripped down, simple TV set, just a table, some chairs, and in various instruments scattered around the set. You know, Johnny Cash walking around in his black outfit with his black Martin guitar. You know, people, you know, as we talked about with uh, the musicians that, uh, that spent time with me when I wrote the book that were there, you know, just letting him pass and all. So Johnny Cash had the kind of, he had the cultural and political cred to pull this off. But what that did is also make people step back and listen and then realize that, you know, in some of their resistance to, to, for whatever reason, maybe they thought that the native movement would muddy and confuse or take the track or take it away from these other issues. But it's interesting because, you know, as we talked about 64 and 65 were a white hot time in our country with various movements, mm-hmm. you know, merging together, the free speech, free speech movement, the escalating war in Vietnam and the anti, anti, you know, anti-war movement, the, the anti-nuclear war movement, civil rights, women's rights. I mean, that was, this was all, they were all converging and Johnny Cash found the way through what the most powerful, powerful tool, which he references when he talks about Pierre Lafarge in that clip, Pierre Lafarge used his music, not as a vicious tool. And so Johnny Cash put that into practice by making this record. And this is what we discover here is that we can find common ground as human beings in the things that we're striving for, which is to be free of, in this case, of great mistreatment and brutality and cruelty and to be able to be free. So it was this interesting and and quite frankly, ridiculous shows the limitations and the narrow thinking. And also let's, you know, let's be realistic. The lack of deep thinking that is required, you know, to me, you know, Johnny Cash, when I discovered in in a deep dive in, in his notes and his writing about this or what, or talking to Roseanne, of course, uh, Roseanne Cash is his, his daughter, John and John, John Carter Cash's son is that, you know, the, he thought deeply about these issues. He can find that these nexus points and these connections. And to me, that made it more serious what he was trying to do. And those that rejected the introduction of native issues into folk music only to me furthered, you know, the, the, the importance of amplifying those issues because they were just replicating the same kind of nonsense that native folks were on a micro level were fighting about on a, micro, a macro level. We're going to get into some of these issues real fast. But before we do that, Rion Giddens did The Vanishing Race on Look Again to the Wind, a clip from her singing the song, and then a really good quote that she has. Wagon trains rolling along. They fade from your vision and in time will be gone. You see an eagle in space. Well, my people won't fall. 
Vanished if you must, you can't see us for the dust of your disgrace. Build your teepees in the air when they're gone, we'll still be there. The invisible race. Mm-hmm. The song itself, the second verse that I wrote can't exist without the first verse. It's it's actually a conversation. You don't want to come full circle. You want to come in a spiral. You want to come back around, but you want to be higher. First off, I could listen to her sing that song on repeat for several hours. One of the things I want to get into (laughs) about her talking about things that don't exist and things that are still here is the native population. In 1960, the native population was 800,000. In 2020, Native people activists began working to get their communities counted in the U.S. Census. The White House prematurely ended the census polling. The 2021 U.S. Census Bureau in the United States, the population was 6.79 million. 2% of the entire population, 574 federally recognized tribes in 15 states that have Native people with over 100,000 in population. And Snedo, my guess is that number is definitely not accurate. As <laughs> Rian Giddens has said, we want to come in a spiral. We want to come back around, but we want to get higher. So first of all, I have to speak just for a moment at Rian Giddens. And to your point, you feel about that way by just listening and seeing her in the film. Could you imagine being there in the room in a small dressing room of the Brooklyn Academy of Music here in Brooklyn, where she took all this time to spend with me after recording the album and a few months you know, later appearing here in Brooklyn at a show, getting ready to go out and perform, doing that with the greatest instrument of all, her own voice, nothing else. She is the embodiment of magnificence. I mean, absolute. She is just magnificent in every way. And it's, it starts with her spirit mm-hmm. and her intelligence here because the way, so as we, we learn about this song, Johnny Cash wrote the song with Johnny Horton, a rockabilly star who died way too young in 1960 at the age of 35. He was a great friend of Johnny Cash's. What Rhiannon Giddens did is reimagine the song even more in, in a different way, as she t- discusses. But it ties into everything you just said, Tommy, about why the, the kind of the line in the sand that she's drawing there, you know, the invisible race and that mm-hmm. we're still here. And, you know, their, their, their spirit cannot be crushed. You know, it's a spiral. We're going to come back around and just go even higher. Now, we know that during that, that, that the Trump administration was great efforts to, to do everything they could to, to destroy the census because the census is a, is a very powerful tool to help allocate funds. And most of the time, federal funding for for desperately needed communities for various social issues. So, of course, another example of attacking a community and a group of people that are and we this has been the thrust of everything we've talked about in this entire series, Tommy, the this idea of kind of continuing genocide of just making them invisible in society. 
You know, so this is a, one of the tools, again, if you're a democracy and a nation of laws, this is a tool how you can fairly redistribute resources in society is the census. So, of course, that it's grossly undercounted. I mean, you know, I think that they might have just picked that number randomly one day, you know, while they were, you know, getting McDonald's delivered to the White House, famous for doing, you know, so and just decided, oh, you know, I'll just pick this number as a number of Native people. It's not it's not trustworthy. Let's just say that. I mean, it's not trustworthy. We've talked about the Indian Removal Act, and now let's get into the termination policy. Congress adopted the House Concurrent Resolution 108 on August 1st, 1953, that stated, quote, whereas it is the policy of Congress as rapidly as possible to make the Indians within the territorial limits of the United States subject to the same laws and entitled to the same privileges and responsibilities as are applicable to other citizens of the United States to end their status as wards of the United States and to grant them all the rights and prerogatives pertaining to the American citizenship. Referring to the symbol of tribal membership, Covington often said termination is like giving your eagle feather away. So Lucy Covington, we have to say, you know, she was the granddaughter of Chief Moses, really, really important native leader. And she's responding to, as you so powerfully just read, Tommy, the the Termination Act, which was uh, initiated by the senator from Washington State, Henry Scoop Jackson. Now, remember, Washington State was was a flashpoint for the Native movement because a lot of their treaty rights were being violated there, particularly around the usage of land and water for hunting and fishing. And as we talked about, Marlon Brando staged a very famous or joined a very famous fishing during the exact week in April of 64, when Johnny Cash was recording Bitter to the album, Bitter Tears. What Hank Adams said, the great native leader of the National Indian Youth Council, if the Indian doesn't have land, he has nothing. And th- these are the kind of things that obviously this has always been about the land, Tommy, always about the land. Now, Senator Jackson wasn't just a kook. I mean, he's a Democratic senator from Washington State who was had very serious ambitions to be president himself one day, but was also taken very seriously within the Democratic Party. You know, John F. Kennedy considered him to the, to the end to be his vice presidential candidate before he ended up choosing Johnson. So this is, this is a powerful senator that is leading this campaign to create this policy that's called a termination policy. They couldn't even find some kind of elegant way of, of, of naming it, even as a charade or as a farce, to make it the most basic attempt to cover up what they were really trying to do. They were just like, let's just call the termination policy. And they did. And it got very close to happening. And this is a particular Dick Gregory, Muhammad Ali even got involved in fighting against it, for example. And Buffy St. Marie talked a lot about that with me when we were Jane Fonda. It was it became a a big flashpoint for what would eventually lead to what we're going to talk about in this episode, the American Indian movement and what they would do to try to really make a stand against what at that point, particularly with the termination policy, seemed like they were we were in the 11th hour for Native folks in this country in terms of what was happening. 
You know, Antonino, based on what you're saying, it kind of leads me right to this. And you've mentioned this several times in this docuseries. The tribes are sovereign and they have jurisdiction over their own citizens and their own land. But the federal government has a treaty obligation to protect the lives of tribal members called the trust responsibility. This goes back to the treaties and the tribal nations in the 18th and 19th centuries. Yeah, you know, this is it's interesting is, you know, we are almost overstating what is a core issue to what's, you know, what has been continually perpetrated against Native people in this country, which is the violation of treaties. Because again, they were entered into in good faith by the tribes. That was on their side. The United States government obviously never intended. It was bad faith from the beginning, as we talked about with as long as the grass shall grow. Yep. And the, the treaty that Washington himself signed spoke into existence when he was president. So as, as I'm looking at some of my notes from uh, that I pulled out for this for this particular episode, Tommy, again, I have to go back to I'm looking at Buffy St. Marie in particular's uh, interview, the time I spent with her and talking about this particular issue and how just devastating it was for them. She says that she remembers when she started trying to build support to fight against the termination policy and just what, what it would lead to, which would be the end of, of Native people, as we, as we know it in the United States. She remembered that when she corralled people like Jane Fonda and, and comedian Dick Gregory and Muhammad Ali, who I just mentioned, she says in my, this is in my interview with her, Dick Gregory and later Muhammad Ali did appearances with us and they were very kind. They were blown away by our lack of clout and our poverty. And I think that that is not just in terms of the economic position of Native people. That is in terms of the political position, let's say, and also the cultural position of these of these folks. Because, again, thoughtlessness or cruelty or harshness of even thinking about a policy called termination, that doesn't do it justice. I mean, it's just, again, it seems absolutely ludicrous that that any thinking person would sit there in any legislative body and say, this is a great idea. We're going to come up with this thing called the termination policy and just terminate, come to some kind of whatever you want to call it, negotiation or agreement with Native people, which would include terminating their position as, as a sovereign people in this country, which we all know would lead to removal of their, you know, the takeover of their lands. Let's tie in a quote from Ricky Medlock from Leonard Skinner. And then I want to get your take on it, on his feelings of the one ethnicity that gets swept under the rug. Without sounding bitter about a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. I think that what has happened in this, in this country is that Native people have been the one ethnic group that everything, the atrocities, the genocide, everything that has happened to them has been swept under the rug. I love Ricky Medlock. I mean, you know, <laughs> one of the best parts of doing this, this series with, with you, Tommy, is that is that Ricky is just like, he is a flamethrower. Mm-hmm. I mean, and obviously what he's staying there is not even that incendiary compared to, you know, everything that he said has been truthful and just right 
completely right on the money about the issue. His passion and his emotion around this is just, it's inspirational for me. But he's completely right again. This is exactly the issue that, and again, as I'm looking, as I'm listening to him speak, I'm looking again at my notes and I'm seeing what Scoop Jackson was, was doing. And it's like, we could ask 10 out of 10 people right now, if I walked out on the street, did you ever hear about the termination policy? A actual potential law in the United States that would terminate tribes and the sovereignty of native people in this country. I mean, I think we'd get blank stares 10 out of 10. I agree. You know? Easy I 10 out that's of 10. like an unfair thing to say, oh, how would anyone know? It's the thing is why wouldn't they know? And on top of that, the problems that challenge in native communities is to erase the resilient groups that have spanned generations. Exactly. And I think exactly. if you if you rephrase that question about the termination policy and ask them how long they think these issues have been going on, I don't think anybody would come close to how long it's been happening. On a very basic level, you know, that's thinking about if someone came up, came to you and said, well, you, you're going to give your rights to essentially free association in terms of you, you know, the house that you own and the things that you do. I mean, it just, you're, you're taking it, you're essentially just completely removing the foundation of a people, just completely removing it. And by the way, we have to state termination policy was completely a bereft and disgraceful piece of legislation because also it was like, there was nothing to, what were the native people going to do when after the termination policy was enacted? There was no plan for, for them. There was no economic support. There was nothing. It was a fend for yourself, you know, kind of a, a we'll see you hopefully never again because you'll just, you know, completely disappear from, uh, from our site because now we've done what we've always wanted to do. We got the remaining land that you have control over. The control of that's really again that's what it's always been about and the eagle feather thing you know we have to we have to you know tell the our, our listeners is the symbol of tribal membership and not of not of native people so when lucy covington is talking about like giving away your tribe think about that to me that's you know it's like here take my first born child the depths of the of the disgraceful attempt and the near success of this policy cannot be understated. Although they tried to get rid of them and terminate them, the native people did actually have a time in history where they wanted their voices to be heard. And that was on Alcatraz at the, the protest. The Alcatraz protest, notwithstanding in 1964, brought little relief for native people from the failed policy of termination and continued disregard the legal tribal treaties. This time... Tribes in the Northwest were facing the removal of their fishing rights brought on by the demands of sports fishermen. We've heard from Howard Zinn before, but now we're going to hear an exclusive clip from your interview with Howard on Alcatraz. Mm -hmm. 1969, there was the occupation of Alcatraz Island by Indians. You know, Alcatraz was an abandoned prison 
terrible place. And and so uh, young Indians, I think they'd just tried it once before in the early 1960s, but now in 1969, they actually succeeded in occupying the, uh, the island and... Uh, I remember that one of the people who was part of the occupation was the daughter of the famous Indian athlete Jim Thorpe. Uh, yeah, and uh, and she was she was she was a leader of the occupation, and they you know they occupied the island. They issued some manifesto, a demand, and just talked about that. They used sort of Alcatraz as a as a uh, a model. Uh, they described it resembled Indian reservations. In fact, there was nothing there. <laughs> nothing, there, there was nothing, everything, you know, that it, it was like Indian reservations, but it, it was, you know, like there. It had no running water and it had no health care facilities. There was no industry. There's no schools. Nothing. So they, they wanted to use Alcatraz Island to sort of, as a showcase, to show the, the nation and the world this is what Indian reservations are, are like. Um, so, I mean, the, of course, the government uh, uh, began to act against them. They cut off all the telephones to the island and electricity to the island and water to the islands. And, and uh, you know, it's just sort of a battle that went on for, for a while. So, after a while, I think they held on to it for about six months, and finally federal forces, you know, evicted them. Just masterful. And so he's talking about both. He's talking about the the one that you referred to, Tommy, is a 1964 one, which is which was a was a key moment. I'm looking at the San Francisco Examiner out of title for the article. Is that wacky, wacky Al- Alcatraz raid <laughs> and invasion by Indians? I mean, it's the actual protest only lasted about four hours, but it was a very thoughtful, you know, it was really well thought out what they did because they were again using federal law to occupy the land because the land Alcatraz had been essentially abandoned. So it could be reappropriated. So using their sovereignty rights as native people, they were going to reappropriate the land. And they tried to come to an agreement, a serious agreement with the United States to buy it back for what was the cost of the land at the time, 47 cents an acre, which is amazing. It's just amazing. So Tommy's going to play a, a great clip from some of the Native actors that took over the Alcatraz in 1964, which was the build-up in 1969 takeover, which was massive. But it, what's important about Richard Oaks, who we're going to listen to, and some of the other Native activists there, is that a lot of soon-to-be-very-prominent Native activists were watching this. And we're seeing this, including John Trudell and Dennis Banks, who have become key characters in our story in this podcast series, what was happening. And they were able to see things that worked and didn't work and bring this forward into a bigger movement, which became the American Indian movement. Described as boisterous, charismatic, and handsome, Oakes was a hard person to ignore, and he quickly became a familiar face in the community. Oakes was approached with an idea that would change the course of his life. 
an elder named Adam Fortunate Eagle laid out a plan to take over an island formerly home to the country's most brutal prison, Alcatraz. It was the first time a collective of tribes, including Iroquois, Navajo, Blackfoot, and other tribes located throughout the Bay Area would band together for one sole purpose. Natives used the island for hunting and gathering and exiling their own. But its most notable usage was as a hiding place for those attempting to escape from the California mission system. Centuries later, the U.S. government infamously used Alcatraz as a prison until it was shut down in 1953, leaving it completely unoccupied. In the years after, the Sioux tribe made an attempt to reclaim the land, but failed. On November 9, 1969, Oaks and a group of indigenous student organizers headed for Alcatraz. When they arrived, the activists immediately presented their goals for the protest. One, buy the deed from the state, and two, have the United States government pay for the building of a school, museum, and cultural center. We will purchase said Alcatraz Island for $24 in glass beads and red cloth a precedent set by the white man's purchase of a similar island about 300 years ago. It was the beginning of what would become a 10,000-strong, 19-month occupation by Native Americans from across the country. It sounds like a good deal to me. I, I mean, <laughs> when it, when it when started in 64, you know, and again, we have to point out, the record is our, is our, is our fulcrum, Johnny Cash's Bitter Tears record with Pierre Lafarge's songs, the Out of Our Haze, everything we've talked about is our fulcrum here. So it's interesting that in 64, this happens, Marlon Brando and the Fishins, the first attempt to shed light on the, the growing native movement, this attempt to take over Alcatraz, this clever way of framing it at two ends of the country, two coasts. There's a prison, this island, and then there's a Statue of Liberty, the New York Harbor. I mean, you know, it's very clever what they were doing and how they, they were able to frame these issues in these quite dynamic and engaging ways to grab people's attention. And then, of course, as John Trudeau always talked about, you if you're a nation of laws, you have to honor the law. So the takeover of Alcatraz, fair and reasonable price to buy it under the law. I so, love you it. Know, you know, it. Just, again, so, so good. And it was a pretty successful standoff because it ended up bringing international attention to to the native issue in the United States. Some of the situations that we've talked about and we're dealing with right now, the Supreme Court decisions and federal laws that followed resulted in complicated legal arrangement among federal, state, and tribal jurisdictions, which made it difficult for survivors of sexual assault to find justice. Between 2006 and 2016, the tribes lost nine out of 11 cases in the Supreme Court. The responsibility falls to the U.S. attorney, funding, and staffing in Indian communities cut by more than 40% in the last nine years, according to the Department of Justice. We have heard from Joanne Shenandoah before, but this comment hits home on this responsibility. How do we actually deal with our situations right now? I'm not sure how we handle and deal with these situations right now, but we're doing something about it with this docu-series. And in next week's wrap-up, I'm going to give our listeners a list of stuff that you can do to get involved. I mean, that's the only thing we can do. I mean, you know, we're part, albeit maybe a small part, of just presenting 
or shedding some light on on something that you know, Tommy. Before we start every episode, you read me the 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 comments that we get from listeners, or we share that. In particular, our last episode got a, a lot of attention, and both of us received a lot of comments. And, and that's where it starts. At the at the very least, we're able to kind of create a new dialogue or conversation around this and find some kind of, uh, of, in our case, solidarity to support people like Joanne Shenandoah and her husband, the Native Scholar, Douglas Carantino, and it goes on and on and on. Bill Miller, who's in our film, those, those that are out there that have been relentless in bringing these issues to light and trying to create a new path because Justice through the system for through our system for Native people is probably even more challenging than it is for other groups that we've seen. And that's saying something because there are a myriad of challenges, uh, structural and otherwise, for many groups, including Black Americans, through the justice system, as we know. So when we hear this, that their funding's cut by 40%, they lose, they've lost nine out of 11 cases in the Supreme Court. You know, these are not just, you know, losses in the moment. They're signaling that there's losses to come, to not even try to bring, you know, what you're looking for to bear here, which is justice. And this is something that we've, we've constantly returned to in this series when we've talked to everyone from Buffy St. Marie to even Roseanne Cash and Rhiannon Giddens and Joe Henry, you know, this is obviously what people are, it's so obvious to all of us, you know, but is unknown to many. The basis of the movement is the right to self-determination. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's interesting because, again, I was looking at my notes and you'll find this interesting that this has been, you know, something that we, we talked about, you know, earlier in this episode, but we've talked about throughout the series you know, about how, you know, John Trudell said it wasn't about what folks were looking for through civil rights because because of treaty law and because they were a sovereign nation, they're looking essentially the government and other forces of power within the United States to stop interfering with their right to be free or in this case, what you just said, self-determination. And so when you were looking at some of the things like some of the Clyde Warrior and Von Deloria activists from the 60s that were very prominent, they were actually at one point supporters of Von Deloria, in particular of Barry Goldwater's presidential run, which people may find surprising as opposed to Johnson's presidential run, because they didn't want the Native movement to be swallowed by the civil rights movement because the fundamental issue was different, as we talked about because they were a sovereign nation. So they were looking for the most important thing, their protection, their ability, their right to self-determination, which again, Tommy, is what essentially what all of humanity is like, is a the basic right, human right, for people in this world, the right to self-determination. That's the constant battle throughout history. The forces that are arrayed against the right to self-determination and the and those that are trying to preserve, protect it, expand it, and keep it sacred. Because without that, you're 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 not free. I mean, that's the reality, is that you're not free. Dinner of bread and cheese, sitting with his back to an old tent shack, 
stifling in the breeze that stirred the sand of the useless land that the government had granted with the furious heart and worlds apart this is what he chanted we get to live this life of creating art so we have a responsibility i think to make that art mean something the intent is what's important and that's where the beauty comes from that's why we're still interested in it today